Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Park Church, uh, and I, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, we, we gather here every week, and uh, we worship God. And we believe that because of who Jesus is, because he's the one in whom we see what God is like, uh, we believe that God is a hospitable God. He is a welcoming God. And therefore, as his people, our hope as we gather here on Sundays and worship this God is that we cultivate space here that is also hospitable and that is also welcoming. Uh, and that's, that's our hope for you if you're a visitor or a guest. If that's not your experience, please tell us. <laughs> we'd, we'd like to know. But, but we're so glad you're here. Uh, I, I want to begin this morning with, uh, with a very simple question, which is, which is code for, it's a trick question. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but just th think in your mind, think through the answer to this question in your mind. What is this? What, what is this? Now, if, if you're thinking to yourself right now, well, Michael, this is a Bible. Yes, true, true. But, but what is it? And, and, and if you're thinking to yourself now, well, okay, more specifically, it's an, it's an anthology of 66 books uh, written in, over, in, in three different languages over a period of roughly 1,000 years, from a culture very different from our own. Okay, yes, that's true. But what is it? And there, there are many different ways to answer this question. And, and what I want to suggest is how we read this really matters. And our answer to that question, how we fundamentally understand what this thing is, matters. If this is merely an interesting historical book, then uh, you may own one, but it's probably going to collect dust on your shelf, right? If, if that's what it is. If it's simply a rule book, a book of rules or a book of laws, uh, then you, you may be motivated to read it, uh, but, but it's very likely it will it will actually turn you into the sort of person who's maybe a little too concerned with following all the rules and maybe the sort of person who, who's a little judgy. Some of you may read it as primarily a collection of moralistic fables. Some read it as fundamentally systematic theology. For some, it's, it's a compendium of timeless Truths. For others, it's a, it's a collection of devotional bits. And for some, when they think of this book, what they see is a weapon that has been used throughout history to promote and perpetuate systemic injustice. Like, how we see this, how we read it, matters. And the reality is, there's truth to all of these things that I just said. This book was written within history, right? There, there are rules present in this book. There are moralistic fables and stories. There's a lot of theology. There, there's a collection of timeless truths. 
many people have read this book devotionally. And the sad and tragic reality is, is that this book has been used in many ways throughout history to perpetuate injustice. And yet, none of these things answer the fundamental question of what is this book? This is a story. This book tells a story from beginning to end. This book tells a narrative, and this narrative is the thing that binds everything else together. There's a plot line in this book, and it's, it's a plot line of a story of which you are not the main character, although you are invited to play a very important part. There, there was a, a missionary many years ago in India who got into a conversation with a Hindu scholar about the Bible. And uh, in the course of their conversation, this, this Hindu scholar made this keen observation. He said, I, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books of religion in India. We, we don't need any more. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history. The history of the whole of creation and the history of the human race. And therefore, a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. That is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. This morning, uh, we are introducing a new sermon series called The Story, where we, that is Matt, Pastor Matt and I, will, uh, starting next week, devote six weeks to telling the whole biblical story. Now, there's a lot of material in the Bible, so obviously we will be selective and we will be summarizing, and we'll be doing this by, by breaking the biblical story up into six different sections, or what we will call the six acts of the biblical drama. And if, if, if you're thinking, okay, how in the world, how in the world are you guys going to tell the whole story of the Bible in just six weeks? That's a great question. You should come back <laughs> next week and the week after and find out. Uh, but, but before we actually get into telling the story, which will begin next week, uh, this morning, what I'd like to do is, is to look at a scene from the Gospel of Luke, a very well-known story in, in which Jesus, interestingly, you could say, tells the story. He tells the biblical story. And, and what I want us to notice, before we start actually telling the story, what I want to do this morning is, is stop to, to reflect upon and learn from Jesus a few things that we should know about the biblical story. And so if, if you have a Bible with you, if you don't know Biggie, we've got the text on the screen. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 35. Uh, this, this is a story that took place shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. 
This is God's word for God's world. On the first day of the week, just kidding, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. These are two followers of Jesus. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They, they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. God's word for God's world. Pray with me. Father, uh, we thank you for the gift of your word. Father, we ask now this morning, uh, as we reflect on the story that your word tells, uh, that you would give us eyes to see. Uh, we, we believe that your spirit is present here, and so we don't have to invite your presence. We just ask that in some way you would make us attentive, that you would put aside distractions, whatever's on our mind or in our hearts, and that you would help us to listen to your voice. 
Uh, we, we love you too, God, and we pray in your Son's name by your Spirit. Amen. This is, this is one of those stories that really deserves its own sermon series. There's so much in here that's worth reflection. But what I'd like to do is take us to just one moment in this story. You know, it, it begins with these two followers of Jesus, downcast, downtrodden, depressed, discouraged, in despair. And then they encounter someone. They, they had been believing a particular story about reality. And then they meet someone who turns out to be the risen Jesus, and Jesus tells them a different story. And it's interesting. It's interesting because what we're told is, is Luke tells us that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, now when we read here, uh, Luke says, beginning with Moses. Uh, Moses is a biblical character, but that's that's not actually who Luke is talking about here. You see, when you, when, when you hear the word Moses in a context like this, that was a shorthand way of referring to what are often referred to as the books of Moses, or what today we know as the first five books of our Old Testament in our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and these were often just referred to as Moses, this, this law, because, according to tradition, Moses was the one who wrote these books, first penned them. And so, what Luke is telling us is that Jesus, beginning with Moses, that is, beginning at the beginning, he explained all the scriptures. He didn't just sit down and read the scriptures, he explained the scriptures, which meant he had to summarize. And basically, what we are told here is that Jesus tells the story. He tells the story of Israel, the story of what, what we would refer to today as the Old Testament. And there are some very interesting things about Jesus' telling of the story that I, that I want us to pay attention to. And the first is this. You notice that Jesus tells the story as if it is universally true. He tells it as if it's public truth. It's for everyone. Right? He, he says this, he says, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Now, then he goes on to tell the story, but notice what Jesus doesn't say here. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm, I'm going to tell you guys a different story. And, and this other story is, is true for me. It might not be true for you, okay? That's, that's up for you to decide, but it's, it's true for me and it might not be true for you. No, he, he says, how foolish are you and how slow to believe. Jesus tells this story as if it's universally true. True with a capital T. True for everyone. And telling... A story in this way is, is a very unpopular thing I think we can recognize today in our, in our culture because we live in a cultural moment in which one of the, I would say, core doctrines of our culture is a, what some refer to as a, a functional relativism. 
functional relativism. And what I mean by that is this basic idea that there really is no truth with a capital T. That there really is no grand story. There is no meta-narrative that's universally true. But, but we all have our lowercase t truths. And, and to claim that there is something that's true for everyone, quite frankly, is offensive and arrogant. This, this is the culture in which, in which we live. And, and the reality is there are many ways that people talk about what they believe to be true that is arrogant, that is obnoxious, that is un unhelpful and is actually the fruit of uh, an unhealthy heart. But, but just for one moment, think about this claim. There is no absolute truth. I, I've had actually a number of conversations with people for whom their, their basic commitment is this, that there is no absolute truth. And, in, and if, that's, if that's the case, then I, I just have one, one simple question. Is that true? Right? Think about it. Think about it. Is it true that there is no absolute truth? Because if it, if it is true, well, then there, there actually is something that's true. Um, but, but if it's not true, then the fundamental claim is false. It's not true. It's a, it's a self-defeating argument. It's, it's illogical. And so while it's certainly true that we all operate from our own perspectives, and none of us sees everything clearly, right? As Paul himself, one of the authors of the New Testament says, says we all see through as if like a, like a foggy glass, right? We don't, we don't see things clearly. I mean, I, I like to say that, you know, 30% of what I believe is, is probably not true. The problem is I don't know what 30% that is, right? Uh, which means that that should chasten us and that should... This basic idea that we all operate from a perspective should make us humble, and yet that does not negate the fact that there is truth. Nor does it negate the possibility that we might actually have access to truth with a capital T. Jesus tells the biblical story as if it is universally true. It's true for everyone. It is public truth. And, and yet there's something else just as striking that we notice with how he tells the story. Listen once again. We read, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Concerning himself, which means Jesus tells the story as if He's the punchline. He tells the biblical story as if everything is meant to point to him. What this means is that you cannot understand the Christian faith without giving a good, hard look at Jesus. If you want to understand Christianity, if you want to understand the biblical story, you have to look at Jesus. And, and the reality is there are many places you could look besides Jesus. Uh, I, I, I've been in a number of conversations with people 
who, who genuinely in their hearts struggle so much with the, what I will call, uh, stains on the fabric of the history of Christianity. Of those things done by people in the name of Jesus, in the name of God, representing therefore the church with the big C, that are just evil, that are terrible. And, and as, as I have had conversations with people who are really trying to figure out what they think about everything, this is a stumbling block. And understandably so. Because, I, I mean, I, as I talk with these people, I hear things like, I, I just don't know how I could become a part of a movement that throughout history has, has so oppressed women, has so muted the voice of women, and, and it doesn't take much searching in the history books to find out that, that that's the case in, in many instances. That's not the whole story, but that's certainly true. And then you get to the Crusades, right? And you hear things like, how can I be a part of a historic people associated with this? The Crusades, or, or the Inquisition, right? Or, or, let's say, those churches who were complicit in institutionalized slavery in the history of our own country. Right? And, and we could keep going. It doesn't take a lot of imagination or much searching to see that there are stains on the fabric of the history of Christianity. And, and this is a very real stumbling block for many people. And when I, when I hear these objections, when I hear these struggles from people just genuinely struggling with trying to figure out what they believe, um, I usually respond with two things. And even, maybe even this morning, if, if you find yourself in a place of asking these questions, of struggling with some of these things, then, uh, then I, would, I would say two things. And the first is this. You are absolutely right to be disgusted and brokenhearted by the evil that's been done throughout history in the name of Jesus. And I am too. There are horrible things that have been done in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, as representatives of his people that, that are terrible. And, and you're right. You're right to be brokenhearted by those things. Because I am too. And in fact, I think as followers of Jesus, beyond simply, because we believe the gospel, beyond simply being a people who are quick to own and recognize our own sin in our lives, we should also become the kind of people who, who are quick to recognize and own our corporate sin and to even apologize on behalf of the people of God historically. We, we should be trained to do this pretty easily if we, if we believe the gospel. And, and so I begin by saying, you're right. But then I, then I also say this, and again, if you find yourself in this place, I would, I would just say this one thing. Imagine, imagine for a moment that someone stole your car, your jacket, and your favorite hat, right? Everyone's got to have a favorite hat, right? They, stole, they steal these things, and they go to a bank, and they rob it. That afternoon, some police show up on your doorstep. 
and they hold up some pictures and they say, is, is this your car? And sure enough it is, so you say yes. And they say, is this your jacket? And it is. Is this your hat? Yep. All right, well then you are under arrest because we have you on surveillance robbing a bank this morning. Come with us. What would you say? Probably like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Um, I think there's been a misunderstanding. That's not me. That's not me. I know they're driving my car. I know that person is wearing my jacket. I know they're wearing my hat. I know they're pretending to be me, but they are an imposter. And let me just say, if you're here this morning and you find yourself struggling to make peace with the things that people throughout history have done in the name of God and in the name of Jesus, then I, I want to invite you to very clearly hear the voice of God this morning saying, that's not me. Those are imposters. And the things that they have done are antithetical, utterly contrary to, to my vision for this good world that I've made and my vision for what I want to happen. Imposters. If you want to fairly and, and, and justly evaluate or assess the truthfulness of a movement like Christianity, you, you don't look at the worst. What you do is you take a hard look at its founder. You look at the content of his teaching and the quality of his character. If you want to fairly assess a movement, is this true? You look at the founder, the content of his teaching and the quality of his character. And so in the case of Christianity, what this means is you have to look at Jesus. If you want to understand what Christianity is about, what the Bible is all about, you, you have to give a good, hard look at Jesus. And you have to ask questions. Like, think about this. If you were to make a list of all of the people throughout history who, who have ever claimed to be God, or at least in some way claimed divinity, and you had that list, by and large, I think it wouldn't take much imagination to recognize that this is largely a list of wackos. Right? Crazies. Throughout history. Or, or at least people who are, are clinically narcissistic. Right? And then, if you were to make a second list of, let's say, the top ten most influential people from history, people whose teachings, whose ideas, whose very life, in some way, brought peace and justice and beauty to the world that, that most of us have heard about this person. There's only one name who would appear on both of these lists. Like, how do you make sense of that? Like, when you look at Jesus, how do you make sense of the, both the beauty but the incredible challenge of his teaching? Like, how do you make sense of his death? And, and in particular, the empty tomb. There are many, many, in fact, the majority of first century historians, many of whom are not Christians, not believers, and yet the majority recognized that the tomb was empty. 
How do you make sense of that? If you want to understand Christianity, if you want to understand the biblical story, you, you have to look at Jesus. Jesus tells the story in such a way. He presents it as, as something that is universally true. It is public truth. And as something that ultimately points toward him. But, the, but there's one more thing, though. One more thing about this story that Jesus tells that should get our attention, and that is that it is life-changing. When our story began, uh, you have these two Jesus followers who were pretty down in the dumps. They were depressed, they were discouraged, and in fact, interestingly, they had had a lot of religious experience. They had a lot of religious experience, and it left them very discouraged, very discontent. But then something happened. They encountered Jesus, and the biblical story was explained to them in such a way that changed their lives. And after Jesus broke bread with them, and they recognized that it was him, and then he just disappeared. I mean, imagine that. What in the world is going on here? After this happened, we're told they said, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Were not our hearts burning within us? The biblical story was told in such a way that made sense to them, in such a way that gave them hope for the future. This radically changed the lives of these two disciples. And I think the reason why is because the Bible isn't just an interesting piece of religious literature. It's so much more. It's a story that's meant to be inhabited. It's a story into which we are invited to live, to find our meaning. This is a fundamentally different type of story than your favorite Netflix show uh, or, or Disney Plus show or whatever it is you're streaming right now, right? When, when you sit down to watch your favorite show, it kind of goes like this. You sit down, you push play, and then you forget about reality, right? And, and for just one hour, lightsabers are real, right? Baby Yoda is adorable, right? Uh, you, you forget about reality and you suspend any objections you have to mythical things and you enter a story, right? And you are entertained for an hour. But then once it's over, you step out of the story. You come back to reality and you, you remember that these things aren't real. They're fun, but they're not real. The biblical story it's the other way around. The biblical story is, is, a, is a story that invites you in and then demands that you stay because it is reality. The biblical story is a story that invites you in and, and seeks to shape you. It gives you a context for life in which you can make meaning of your experiences, including your suffering. It's a very, very different kind of story. Uh, one scholar, Michael Goheen, puts, puts it this way. He said, The question is not whether the whole of our lives will be shaped by some grand story, 
The only question is which grand story will shape our lives. For the one who has heard Jesus' call to follow him, the call comes with a summons to enter the story of which he was the climactic moment, the story narrated in the Bible. It is an invitation to find our place in that story. Our hope, beginning next week, as we begin to walk through the biblical story, for Matt and I, our, our hope is threefold. We hope that three things happen. One, we hope that as we discuss this story, that we would come to know the story and to know it better. Whether you, you know nothing about the Bible or you've been following Jesus longer than I've been alive, right? We, our hope is that we would come to know this story better. We also hope that, that this, in, in the course of this, this series, that we wouldn't, just, we wouldn't just come to know the story in our minds, but that we would explore together what does it mean to live within this story. This is partly why I'm, I'm so excited this go-around to be leading a community group. I'll be leading the Little Silver community group because so much of what will be happening in these groups is sitting around with the biblical story open wrestling with this question of what in the world does it look like to let this story shape my life in my relationship in my nine to five right wherever wherever you may be we we want us to know the story so we can live the story and and ultimately we also want this community of jesus followers to be able to tell the story um, Australian sociologist John Carroll made this observation. He said, the, the waning of Christianity as practiced in the West is easy to explain. The Christian churches have comprehensively failed in their one central task, to retell their foundation story in a way that might speak to the times. I'll end with this. About 10 years ago, while I was a pastor in Phoenix, uh, I got a phone call one day, uh, a phone call from a, a dear childhood friend of mine. In, in high school, we had been very, very close. And this was a friend who we, we hadn't really kept in touch that much. Once a year, maybe once every two years, we would touch base. Uh, we could just pick up right where we left off. Uh, but this time when he called, I could tell that this wasn't just a, hey, let's catch up type call. And, and he, he then shared with me, that he, uh, he, by the way, was not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, uh, but he started dating one. And, and as he was dating this young woman, he, they began to have conversations about Christianity, and that, that got him beginning to think, and to begin, beginning to ask questions that he hadn't asked or thought about in a really long time. And, and he realized, you know what, I need someone besides, besides my girlfriend, uh, I, I need to figure out what I think about this. I need someone to process this with. And so he gave me a call and said, could you just, like, could you just pastor me through this, this process? And so I was like, dude, I would love to. Um, my fees are really steep. But I think, uh, no, I, I said, I would be honored. And so we started every week having a conversation. And, and one of the very first questions he asked me was like, how do I make sense of the Bible? Like, explain the Bible to me. And so I said, well, it's basically a story. 
And I then told him the biblical story, much like we are going to be discussing in the weeks to come. It took two to three minutes. And afterwards, I remember thinking, man, I botched that. <laughs> I could have done such a better job. But after I finished, there was a silence. And he said, whoa. And he said, Michael, dude, I, I have never heard the Bible explained like that before. That is so helpful. And, and he, he's the entrepreneurial type, like the business mind type guy. And so he said, you know, you know what all churches should do? Like what churches should do is, is anytime someone new walks in, they should have a corner. And, and it says, if you're new, start here, right? And, and there should be a table with iPads, right? And every iPad should have just a two-minute video that explains the biblical story very simply. And there should be someone at the table welcoming newcomers, saying, hey, but why don't you come over here and watch this video? And if, if you do that, then everything else that happens in there will make so much more sense. <laughs> like, dude, that's, that's a great idea, right? But, but he heard the story told in a way, not even told very well, but told in a way that was comprehensive, that made sense of the biblical story, right? Our, our hope and our prayer as we spend time in this story that, that is universally true, this story that points to Jesus, that story that if inhabited, can change your life, that we as a community would come to know it, that we would live it, and that we would be able to tell it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day and another opportunity to open your word, another opportunity to respond to the good news of your grace and your son, Jesus. Uh, and we, we ask that as we start this series, that, that we as a church family would, would actually begin to immerse ourselves in the biblical story, perhaps in ways we never have. That you would challenge us to not let this be interesting information, but, but that it would touch down on our lives, that it would touch down on our hopes and our hurts, our struggles, our sorrows, and we ask that you would equip us as Jesus followers to be able to tell this story in ways that, that are true, that are compelling, that are winsome, that are humble. It's toward this end, Father, we ask and we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, who gave everything for us and by the power of your spirit. Amen.